Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Coming up, Greg Mackling will talk about the new Winnipeg Jets. Greg, of course, one of the co-hosts of the start here on CJOB weekday mornings. Jesse Hildebrand, the general manager of Capital K Distillery, will join us on the podcast to talk about Manitoba's growing alcohol industry. Transcona City Councilor Sean Nason and also Poly Sci Guy U of M Paul Thomas will talk to him about the SNC Lavalin affair. Lots on the way here on the podcast. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now the podcast. Deadline day is the last day you can make moves, so you've got to, uh, you know, uh, assess some things. And for us, you know, we do have three banged-up uh, defensemen right now that, you know, at various different stages of, of their recovery, and, and um, you know, we needed to make some of those moves. And, you know, up front, uh, again, you know, with Kevin and, and with Pear um, and with, you know, with Hendy, it's, um, you know, they're all addressing, you know, certain needs uh, that we feel we, we had uh, within this uh, organization. That, of course, is Jets GM Kevin Sheveldayoff joining us now here. Big Winnipeg Jets hockey fan, co-host of The Start, weekday morning, 6 to 10 here on CGOB. Greg Mackling, just back from Las Vegas, Nevada, where he went and saw the Jets take on the Golden Knights. Did you have fun? I know you can't give us details. <laughs> you know, it's like when you travel to Transcona, same in Vegas. What happens in Vegas or Transcona stays in Vegas and Transcona. I get it. Well, if you didn't catch The Start this morning, yeah. you're not getting it again. <laughs> okay. All right? You so, don't have to. You had fun, though. Oh, oh, only because I realized I broke the code, Hal. Uh-oh. What goes in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah. Uh, so I gave out some tidbits, but regardless of that, yeah. yeah, it was an outstanding time. The Vegas Golden Knights put on a great show yeah. in their arena. You couldn't do it 41 times in Winnipeg. You'd aggravate far too many people because yeah. it is sensory overload. Yeah. But it's outstanding for those that come from, from far and away. Yeah. I can only imagine they have... I estimated between three and 4,000 Jets fans in the wow. building on Friday night. There must be nights when they have double that mm. for teams from away. And so it's uh, it's something that you could deal with a couple times a year, but 41 times a year, yeah. I don't think you could do it. You're a big Twitter guy. I've discovered something new on Twitter. What's that? These polls that I can do on Twitter. And so I asked a very simple question. Do you think the Jets, after their trade deadline, wheeling and dealing, are a better team? 64% said, you bet. Just 7% said, no. 29% said, I don't know. So maybe not big hockey fans. But 64 to 7% say, yeah, we're a better team now after what happened yesterday. Your 64% people are very smart. Yeah. They're very astute. So give me your opinion on this. Why are we better? Why did these moves make a lot of sense? Well, we saw what Paul Stastny did for the Jets last season in the playoffs. He was... In a lot of senses, the final piece to an already very good puzzle, and what it, it's like, a, it's like an, having an ace up your sleeve yeah. when you're playing poker. When you need it, right. it's there. Well, Kevin Hayes, a name a lot of people not familiar with. He's six foot five. You know, he's on pace for a career year. He's got over fifty points. He plays on the power play. He kills penalties. He's a big body. Works hard, and he will give the Jets options. Brian Little, very good player. Now they have options with Brian Little. Now you've got a six foot five guy, and he says it himself, Kevin Hayes. I'm a pass first guy. That's music to the ears of guys like Nikolai Ehlers, yeah. Patrick Laine, mm. and perhaps to Matthew Perot. 
based on what happened in practice this morning, they've got Line Shifley Wheeler together as they have had since Friday night, and they'll keep Lowry Tanev Cop together. They've slotted Hayes in between Nikolai Ehlers and Matthew Perot. And then on your quote unquote fourth line, lots of teams love this, have yeah. have this combination as their top line. Right. Jack Roslevic, Brian Little, and Kyle Connor. Not uh, bad at all. Yeah. This is really what the impetus for this is, is gives the Jets more options than they had coming in. Yeah. It it, it you know, and I know an argument could be made leading up to trade deadline. You got a pretty good team, you know, mm-hmm. but then they saw some entries on defense and obviously uh Shevel Dayoff uh you know, sort of shored things up there a little bit with some moves yesterday. But you're right, going into the playoffs, one injury to a guy like Little and you know, you're kind of hooped, right? So you you've got to prepare and, uh, you know, the as many people have said on our air lately, that window to win the cup is so small that when you think you've got that chance, you've got to go for it. 100%. That's bang on. Whoever's feeding you that information, yeah. Hal, keep listening to that person. Right. They're serving you well yeah. because the Jets' window of opportunity here is maybe this year and two more, mm. depending on the contract status and, and how much Patrick Liney signs for and Kyle Connor. They've got lots of – it's the salary cap area. Right, so you can stockpile all the players you want. The Winnipeg Jets probably would have gone out and got Mark Stone yesterday, mm. brought him home, but to sign him to a nine point five million dollar contract like Vegas did for yeah. eight years, not happening. Can't do it. Can't do it. Mm. He would be the top paid player on the team, a guy that hasn't played a shift yet. How do you mm. do that? Yeah. How do you look at Blake Wheeler, a guy who's committed to being here and go? We're going to bring in another guy and pay him more. It's difficult to mm. do, and it doesn't fit under the salary cap. So this is definitely the Jets declaring, as several teams have done. Yeah. We are in it to win it, and it's an outstanding addition, a, a player that they've had their eye on uh, in the past based on, on some some conversation I've been hearing as well. So do you think they can turn it around with Minnesota in town tonight now? Can we get over this slump now? Do you think the players have been distracted by all the trade deadline talk, or what's the what's this slump with the Jets all about? Hal, if I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. Yeah. You know, I'd You'd have a job, or... I'd have a job yeah. somewhere in the NHL, but I firmly believe this. Patrick Laine missed Nikolai Ehlers more than we can imagine. They room together on the road. They're best friends. They play Fortnite together. They do all sorts of stuff off the ice with one another. I think that was affecting Patrick Laine's game. First game back, Laine gets two goals. Ehlers scores 56 seconds into his first shift. Ehlers so fast. So when you talk about the power of one player Mm. and what one player can do, he gave the Jets so much added speed. And then you put a line together that has really never been together before Ehlers little Connor like they did Friday night boom you've got some magic so are they over this slump well we will find out tonight I don't think they played horribly against Mm -hmm. Arizona on Sunday they ran into a hot goaltender in the third period in particular but I think you'll see some of the some of the stress escape this team because let's be honest the players that are here want to be here. And I think it was probably stressing some of the guys, Matthew Perot's name had come up in terms of potential trade bait, Jack Roslevic. And I think that might've been wearing on some of the players, the guys that want to be here. Am I going to get moved out for that piece? And especially like who wants to go to Ottawa Mm. right now? Nobody. So uh, there's every, every possibility that we'll see a very relieved Winnipeg Jets team tonight, if not a better team. 
Thank you, Greg. Greg Mackling, he is part of the start here on CJOB. Mackling, McNabb, and McGarry, 6 to 10 a.m. weekdays. They are in again tomorrow morning starting at 6 a.m. Joining us now from Capital K Distillery right here in Winnipeg, the general manager, Jesse Hildebrand. Hi, Jesse. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Hal. I got a news release from you guys the other day, uh, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to give you a chance to explain what that's all about. But I want to have a bigger conversation with you about the alcohol industry in the province of Manitoba because it really seems to be growing on several fronts. So first of all, you've launched a low-cost premium vodka. Tell us about it. Yeah, we uh, we just launched WPG Vodka, a part of the WPG Spirits line. Um, it's the first in line. Basically, we wanted to uh, bring a different kind of product to the market, uh, appeal to not only our existing but uh, possibly new new customers for uh, for Capital K Distillery as well. We currently have the premium right. um, or the ultra premium tall grass line out right now, you know, uh, uh, and we've got vodkas and gins and flavored vodkas, and so we just want to create a a different product line and mm. appeal to a. Uh, a different demographic at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Um, low cost is always good for, for everybody, but uh, sure. for, for Winnipeggers and, and Manitobans <laughs> for sure. So I don't think you're, you're on the wrong track there. And of course, you know, we have, um, uh, we have uh, uh, Crown Royal, of course, up by Gimli, mm-hmm. well-known in the province of Manitoba. And we're seeing all these beers, you know, all these craft, craft beers. And it just seems to me like the liquor industry or, or I guess the alcohol industry in the province of Manitoba is booming now. Am I right about that? It's, uh, I say it's on its way to booming. It's, uh, it's ramping up. Uh, absolutely, you uh, you definitely see the increase. I would argue that the the brewing industry has boomed in Winnipeg. Absolutely, um, and we're we're starting to get there with the with the spirits industry as well. Um, if we had a more uh, you know if we had a more favorable climate, I'm sure we'd have a, a wine industry too. But uh, you know. Um, yeah, so it, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely on its way. It's on the up and up, you know. Yeah. And I said that about the wine industry a while ago, and I got calls from people that actually make wine in Winnipeg. So it's not a big industry, but it is there is oh, an it, industry. Oh no, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, That's yeah, what no, I mean. I it, what would mean. Be, it would yeah. be a bigger industry if yeah. uh, if we had a more favorable climate. I didn't think there would be a Winnipeg or Manitoba wine, but there are, and that that mm-hmm. surprised me. So why are we seeing this growth in this industry? Any idea? Well, I think that I think that uh, Manitoba stereotypically likes to uh, likes to play it safe, and uh, you know, it stays stays well behind trends um, as compared to other provinces in Canada. Um, I know that if you look towards BC, you know, BC's got over fifty craft distilleries uh, by themselves. I, I don't even know the number of breweries. Um, now, then, you can argue that their climate there too. They definitely have a wine industry out there, but you can argue that. Uh, you know the, the the argue about that for the wine industry, but no, I I think that Manitoba is just starting now to finally get on board and see economic growth in the other provinces within this industry and starting to um, starting to you know lo- loosen up some some fairly old and ancient regulations, yeah. um, realizing that it's not uh, you know it's not the the horrible product that it was made out to be in the twenties. But yeah, uh, you're, yeah, you're right. Because I, for many years, uh, in my rock radio days worked in the bars a lot mm-hmm. and I know how archaic some of the rules and regulations have been with the bars. So yeah. uh, I, I get where you're coming from, you know, coming from with Winnipeg and Manitoba regulations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Are we seeing growth now because of where we're at? It seems to me we're close to a lot of the products that would be used to make, for example, your uh, new, 
new low-cost WPG vodka. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm not really sure where all of that comes from. Uh, you know, I think it would definitely have to be, you know, again, it goes back to the regulations. It goes back to uh, right. having them be so tight, uh, tight-knit. And I'm, and I'm not saying that, you know... You know, it should be something where we should take all the rules and regulations out and it should be, you know, no holds barred. But uh, definitely is something that there there's economic growth, you know, to be had there. Um, and it and it is a booming business. And we can even, <clears throat> if we even look at, you know, um, the USA and 20 years ago when they experienced their um, beverage industry boom out there. Well, you know, probably coming up closer to 30 years now. Um you know, there's 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 economic growth to be made there, and so I think that uh, I think that now we're we're just we're finally getting on the train. We might be on the caboose of the train, but we're <laughs> uh, we're definitely on it. So then, you know, when Capital K Distillery started uh, doing this, and it hasn't been around that long, right? How long mm-hmm. has it been around? Uh, the doors opened August of 2016. Yeah, so a few years, two mm-hmm. year, two mm-hmm. years really. Uh, was it a tough decision to say we're going to start distilling uh, distilling alcohol? I'm sure it was a. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there were some some many good conversations that the owner Jason Kang had, uh, you know, and 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 sleepless nights thinking, huh, you know, is this what I'm going to do? But I think he, uh, you know, I think he went for it. He he definitely wanted to bring his passion for the for the product, uh, bring it to market, so to speak. Um, and I think he also saw an opportunity there too. You know, we're kind of we're pioneering the the spirit production industry in Manitoba. Um, we've got you know Patent Five Distillery coming uh, coming right up behind us. Um, excuse me. And uh, so I think that he 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 definitely wanted to kind of open up that market, seeing as you know we've got the the beer boom and uh, historically speaking, you know from the other provinces, you see the brewing boom and then you get into the you know the spirits catch on after that. Yeah. How are some of your products? So you mentioned the tall grass, which is a premium uh, mm-hmm. vodka. Mm-hmm. How are some of these uh, products that you've got doing in other parts of the country, like not just in Winnipeg and Manitoba, but are are you selling well in other parts of the country, or is it just a local thing? We just have our products available in Manitoba at okay. the moment. We have yeah. plans to uh, go to other provinces. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's one of those things where all of the different provinces have their own uh, regulations and rules and laws in place about right. alcohol distribution. And you've got to sort of abide by all of that going well, forward. We have eh? to abide by theirs, and we also have to make sure that we abide by ours too as well. And and then there's the you know the. Uh, Topic of you know is it actually going to be you know cost beneficial to go sure. to other provinces? So uh, at the moment we're just in Manitoba. We have plans to expand to other provinces. Yeah. Hey uh, Jesse, thanks a lot for coming, and I appreciate it. I, no, absolutely. I wish you luck us. with the new product and and everything you guys are doing at Capital K. I think it's important that we support local whenever we can here in, in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. But I thought maybe there was a bigger conversation there, and and I think. Uh, this industry is, uh, it, it, as you said, maybe it's not booming yet, but I think we're on the verge of seeing a boom for sure. We're absolutely ramping up, yeah. Yeah. Jesse Hildebrand, General Manager, Capital K Distillery. One of my uh, favorite members of council, city council, is here, Sean Nason. I like him because he cried when he got elected. <laughs> You're gonna. Yeah. You're never gonna live that down, Sean. No, by and the way. I don't have any tissues today either. So <laughs> you don't have any here's tissues. Here's hoping. 
We, uh, you were reacting on, uh, I tweeted out uh, something about uh, what do we do uh, with these aging rec facilities, Norwood Pool, that was around the Norwood Pool time, mm-hmm. uh, when a decision was made on that, and you told me then that you've got a town hall coming up, and I promised to have you on closer to that. The town hall's tomorrow. Give us the details. It is. It's tomorrow night at uh, 6 o'clock at the uh, Transcona Retired Citizen Center on Whittier Avenue in uh, downtown Transcona area. Um, you know, that... The Norwood Pool is is one of many pieces of infrastructure that we have, Hal, that right. uh, were built back in the 1970s around the 100th birthday of Canada. And uh, we're sorely under uh, uh, underutilized in a lot of these areas that were built around that time. Uh, tastes have changed. Requirements have changed. The, the, needs, the needs of our community have changed. And we're finding less and less these facilities are being utilized from the time that they opened to the time that they closed daily. And uh, I think we need to look hard at what uh, what we're using them for. So the town hall tomorrow then is uh, to look at ways of filling these city buildings with activity. Is it that simple? That's what this is about uh, that's, tomorrow? That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, the senior center right now in itself, uh, the city administration won't renew its lease. Uh, they're on a month-to-month lease. Uh, so it's causing some uh, some nerves for the seniors as uh, you know they they use it very regularly uh, for meal programs con- congregate uh, meal programs mm. as they call it and uh, there's other activities the garden clubs there um, so it's a fairly vibrant uh, building yeah and and uh, that's in your ward that's an example of kind of what is, you're talking about it eh? is and mm-hmm. we we've got a couple others that uh, you know that need need some care and attention and and some revitalization I, I think there's a great opportunity for additional childcare. Uh, in a lot of these buildings or expansion of childcare where they do exist because um, that is a sore, sorely needed item uh, in a growing community like Transcona. Yeah. Um, around Norwood Pool time, I was saying, you know, how do we go forward? Do we, you know, take some of these aging facilities, keep patching them up and keep using them, or do you maybe sell the land and take that money to build bigger and better? Obviously, there would be fewer because we've got many, many community centers out there, but maybe an area of town would have a bigger and better new community center. Do you have any thoughts on how we should go forward? Well, I, I know if you look at some of our, our you know, neighboring cities, uh, Calgary is a prime example. They've got regional recreation spaces. They just did a great big one in Calgary, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they've been doing it for many years. You know, again, like I say, a lot of these buildings, the community centers in particular, were built in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, you know, we're getting harder and harder to find people to lead these facilities on a volunteer basis. We're having to pay people uh, to convene soccer, for instance. Uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge, and it gets away from what the community center model was initially set up to be. What's the sense you get on council? Uh, do you get any sense as to where a majority of council might want to go on this, or, or is it a mixed bag? Well, I know in particular with uh, community places buildings, uh, the, the administration is looking at what the cost would be for basically free access and my understanding, it's around $3.5 million for the 85 centers. Uh, their number maybe give plus or minus a bit. But, you know, we've we've got to look holistically at, at what the city needs and where we've got to go. The budget's coming out this week. I, I yeah. doubt that this was a, a focal point of the budget, but uh, one can hope that in future years that we look at uh, ways that we can work with the province and the federal government because I suspect they were pretty instrumental in the centennial uh, phase of of these pools and rec centers, mm. and I think we need to to work together to 
to re-envision what uh, recreation and, and community gathering places should look like moving forward. Yeah, the, I don't want to surprise you because you may not know about this, but we have a story at cgob.com right now about the Pantages Playhouse Theater, and it's at, committee, that. It's at committee level right now, but mm-hmm. they're basically looking at possibly selling it to a local developer for five hundred and thirty grand. Now, I'm a bit of a real estate guy. I saw that number and I thought, yeah. that's a heck of a deal. So I think we also, though, need to be careful to protect taxpayers the other way too, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, we'd love to see that continue as a spot for local arts groups and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But we got to, you know, these are, this is, these are the assets of the taxpayers of the city of Winnipeg. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's, Actually, that's today. Yeah, I did hear about that as I was driving over here from City Hall. Um, what's interesting, I, I find with that is that uh, I, I believe it's hamstrung with the historical status that's probably attached it, to it. It may be. I didn't read the whole story. Um, yeah. But I, I would suspect that, uh, you know, we, we've seen what the Met has been re-envisioned as. It's it's pretty pretty, pretty good little venue. Um, the the inside of the Pantages is good, and I know, uh, you know, Big Daddy Taz, yep. and uh, I'm a Rotarian that's part of the the group that puts See, on I knew an that's annual. Why, you're a Rotarian. That's why I like you. There I you have go. yet to there meet a go. Rotarian I did not like. <laughs> uh, but I know with uh, Big Daddy Taz, we do the annual comedy show. And this year, we had to actually relocate to the, to the Met because the Pantages wasn't available. Ah. Uh, but it, it is a good um, community access venue. And I hope that uh, whatever deal is struck, um, we can retain some of that. That would be wonderful for the community. Yeah. How are things on council now? What is how many months has it been now? It's uh, uh, it's just uh, approaching four months. Uh, it's still a little bit nerve wracking. Uh, I will be glad to see mosquito season come because uh, snow season's been uh, been very trying, and we're moving into water main breaking season. And you know, it's we've got an aging community that uh, still needs a lot of uh, love and care. Yeah, I'll tell you, I I pay pretty close attention to you guys at council, you guys and gals at council. And what I've noticed about a few of you new members of council is you're much more focused. I mean, you're obviously dealing with the big issues, too, that affect everybody. Mm-hmm. But you seem much more focused on your ward and the people that elected you, the people. You know what I mean? And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I like that about some of you new members of council. I, I, I like that you're focusing in on, in your case, Transcone or mm-hmm. Kevin Klein over in Charleswood and, and that area. You guys really seem to be focusing in on your people. Well, there is a focus on our local community because those are the people that are very, uh, very quick to contact you. Um, I do try to be as active on social media um, and and responding to emails and phone calls as quick as possible. Um, But uh, I do look at the bigger picture. Um, Also, the military and veterans liaison for the city. So that uh, that's a role I take very seriously as yeah, well. Yeah, what was I reading about that on Twitter the other day? What was uh, what are you involved in right now with that? There was something you tweeted out about the military. Well, I tweeted out uh, the city's very involved as an active employer with regards to uh, employing reservists. Uh, that's allowing them to go and do their military service without having to take uh, leave from their work, uh, f- financial leave. Um, it's a good uh, partnership program that we do. Yeah. Hey, Sean, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. And again, give us the details on this town hall tomorrow night. Again, tomorrow night on Whittier Avenue in Transcona, Transcona Retired Citizen Center. Hope to see everybody out. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. And you'll be talking about that particular facility. That and all the other, uh, about 25 buildings in the community that are publicly owned. Uh, Paul Thomas is a political scientist at the University of Manitoba, and he joins us on the line now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Al. Hi, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate your time today. 
No problem. So as we heard in the news there, Jody Wilson-Raybould likely will give her side of the story in the SNC-Lavalin affair tomorrow afternoon before the Commons Justice Committee. And uh, we know that Prime Minister Trudeau has lifted the solicitor client's uh, client privilege. What do you make of this? Do you think we're going to hear any bombshells tomorrow? Or I can't imagine Trudeau lifting uh, a solicitor client privilege if there's a smoking gun, but I don't know. What do you make of it? Yeah, well, we have a couple of unprecedented things. The fact that a former cabinet minister gets an audience with the full cabinet, um, which doesn't happen, uh, not to my knowledge, uh, ever before. And then we have the waiver of these two rules about maintaining the secrecy around the most in, inner uh, decision-making within government, namely in cabinet and cabinet committees and so on. So I guess uh, that if uh, Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould had her chance to air her concerns before cabinet, the cabinet must feel that they are, have some confidence that nothing she's likely to say before the highly partisan Justice Committee of the House of Commons is likely to get them in such deep trouble, or more, more trouble than they're in already, that is. Um, and they may think that it's better to have her detailing specific concerns uh, that she had when she was justice minister than having to fight a sort of phantom set of suspicions that circulate around this issue and allow the opposition to inflate the sinister nature of what went on behind the scenes. So better to get it out in the open, and then you can address it more directly and in more concrete terms. Boy, you should have been consulting the Prime Minister on this when this first came out in the Globe and Mail, because I think that would have been great advice, even if there was, you know, some pressure put on the minister. The Prime Minister could have avoided all of this scandal, and we'll get to the polls in a minute, had he just come out and told the truth in the beginning. Yes, the, in terms of the political management of this issue and uh, the communications around the issue, uh, this has not been a strong performance by the Prime Minister. Of all the people I've heard speaking on behalf of the government, uh, and he was a neutral public servant, so I guess he wasn't speaking directly on behalf of the government, the Clerk of the Privy Council and Secretary of the Cabinet, Michael Wernick, did the best job putting forth the strongest possible case that this might have been routine, uh, normal conversations that go on between ministers and uh, uh, and the center of government in the prime minister's office and the prime minister. Uh, that's day-to-day uh, -day activity in, in official Ottawa, I would have thought. And maybe one of the reasons why we've had this blow up, and that's lasted now nearly two weeks, is that Jody Wilson-Raybould was a freshman minister, a very bright and competent and professional minister, but nonetheless, she may not have been exposed to this kind of ongoing, candid, frank discussions that are essential for collective government in Canada. And the Prime Minister's reputation is very much on the line, but he shifted grounds in terms of his defense of his actions and the actions of those serving him, and... Um, when you don't have a consistent message uh, and you're not forthcoming in a full, fulsome way, uh, it gives uh, room for the opposition to interpret it in the worst possible light. We're, all, we're already seeing uh, the Liberals sliding in the polls in the last couple of weeks with this uh, SNC-Lavalin affair. I have a feeling, this is just me, and, and you tell me what you think, but 
even tomorrow when we hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould, let's say there's no there there. I still think that this may hurt the Prime Minister and the Liberals going forward. I think this has been very damaging, and I'm not sure that they can fix the damage done before Canadians go to the polls in October. Um, A couple of comments. Uh, That's good analysis. I agree with you. I'd give you your political science papers tomorrow (laughs) if you you wanted them, but you have a happier life than (laughs) than that. You don't need that. but I think there's a different differential reactions or different reactions to the uh, SNC-Lavalin controversy in Quebec than in the rest of Canada. Uh, in Quebec, this is a major industry, 9,000 employees. The premiers, uh, two premiers of different parties have been lobbying on behalf of the corporation despite its misdeeds in the past. So I don't think it's, there's big damage to the Liberals there. And with the NDP fading in Quebec, the Liberals hope to gain considerable political ground in October in Quebec. Then we turn to the rest of Canada, and I think you're right. You see slippage in support, a few percentage points for the Liberals as a party, and the approval numbers for the Prime Minister are going down slightly. It's not been his finest moment, and he's his sunny ways and wisps of nebulosity that he often speaks haven't worked on this one, because this one you need precision and uh, and concrete facts to counter the suspicions that we talked about a moment ago. So uh, we'll have to see. Now, the second half of your question had to do, will there be at the end of the day uh, tomorrow after a former former minister speaks, will there be a smoking gun? Um, uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybaugh has asked for 30 minutes, normally opening testimony to a uh, House of Commons committee, you get 10, five if you're an academic like me. Uh, but she's a former professor, and I guess she thinks she has a lot to say that she wants to speak to. Hmm. And so I think it could be a very detailed, balanced, and nuanced presentation in the opening remarks. And I think that may pose a problem for the opposition parties who would love to find ammunition to pin Trudeau to the wall. Yeah, and your Quebec uh, point is, boy, well taken. Very good point to make that in Quebec, uh, and we all know how important that province uh, is come election time. So now talk about these by-elections yesterday and what you think might happen in October, uh, knowing uh, uh, so far not very much about the SNC-Lavalin affair. Yeah. um, First, our politics are very uh, volatile uh, and voters' loyalties are not what they used to be. Voters are very fickle these days. They can change leaders and parties very quickly in response to short-term events. Uh, So uh, people like me, so-called pundits, should be rather humble in making predictions about what's going to happen in October. Mm -hmm. With that caveat, I would say that... uh, Before these events um, broke, I would have thought the Liberals were headed back to power, perhaps with a shrunken majority government. It could fall as low as a minority government. Um, I mean, you're right, Quebec is one of the key battlegrounds, but Ontario is is critically important as well. You think of other parts of the the country, like uh, the Atlantic region, they can't hold all 32 seats that they held after the 2015 election. They can't do as well as they did here in Manitoba and Saskatchewan as they did. Their numbers will probably go down in BC. They don't have much to lose in Alberta. So Ontario has become, you know, could be the key to the election. And this, I don't think this issue about the rule of law 
and deferred uh, prosecution agreements and the shock cost doctrine is the kind of stuff that people are talking about around their kitchen table, except at your household, perhaps. And and so I don't think this drives a lot of votes, but it does take some of the shine off the prime minister uh, who in the previous election in 2015 was going up against a popular prime unpopular prime minister who had a, a reputation for secrecy and obsessive control. And so Trudeau promised sunny ways and a more open and transparent government. And that's a breakdown of, of that promise. He also promised the major issue of reconciliation with indigenous people in this country. And here we have an indigenous minister who's been dropped from well, resigned from cabinet and demoted from a senior portfolio. And uh, and then he promised that uh, his cabinet, he was the first feminist prime minister and he'd have a gender balanced cabinet. And it looks like the first minister to pay a price for getting in political trouble is a woman. So those, those will be uh, strikes against the prime minister and the liberal brand, but we'll have to see. It's too early to call. They've been running neck and neck, the two main parties in the polls, for some time, mm-hmm. and it's basically a statistical tie. I know Angus Reid today, or the Reid polling company, yeah. uh, has, a, has the conservatives slightly ahead. Nick Nanos, who does these rolling polls, which I have somewhat more confidence in, slightly more confidence in the Reed, Angus Reid polls, uh, still has it basically tied. So it's not a runaway. It's not It's not a sure thing. And like I say, a week in politics can be a lifetime. So much can change. Yeah. I think everything we've talked about over the last 10 minutes or so, though, Paul, will make the campaign much more interesting, I think. Yeah. We'll have to see how the two leaders do. Um, if... Uh, you know, if it was if the if the election was fought over leadership, you would think Trudeau still has an advantage, mm-hmm. even though his image is tainted, as I said. Yeah. But Mr. Shear has not made a strong emotional connection with voters. No, He's I agree. Not well known to voters, mm-hmm. and Mr. Singh has his own problems. Uh, uh, you know, both in terms of recognition as a leader and this woeful state of the party in all parts of the country. I've spoke recently to retired MLAs and MPs from Manitoba, and some of the new Democrats in the audience did not like to hear me say those things. But part of my job is to tell the truth, or at least the truth as I understand it. And in terms of uh, support for the party and the polls, in terms of membership, in terms of fundraising, in terms of recognition and connection with the leader, they're in trouble on all those fronts. They don't really have an NDP government. Uh, well, they have one in Alberta and uh, one in uh, have one in BC, but both of them are in political trouble. The NDP government in Alberta will probably lose the election, which is scheduled for May. So yeah. the NDP prospects are not looking good. Paul, thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. Always a pleasure, Hal. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.